This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I found myself in around 1990 sitting in a room in Oxford and I was joined by one of the most successful spies ever. This woman who was known then as Ruth Werner but she'd also been known as Ursula Schuzinski, Ursula Burton and Ursula Hamburger. She'd been an ideologically driven spy for the Soviet Union because as a young woman, she decided that communism was the way to defeat Hitler. Her codename was Sonia, and she'd written Sonia's report. And she came in to talk to me about it. We didn't have any preamble. We went straight into the chat. So I, I sort of rather limply said, well, hello, welcome. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You used to know Oxford very well, didn't you? Yes, we lived here. My youngest child was born here. It, I think even on Bunbury Road there was a sort of hospital or nursing home and he was born there and I lived in Summertown, George Street. Have you been back recently? No, that's the first time I'm back after 40 years. You probably haven't had time to see much of it yet. Not of Oxford, but we went to Great Rollwright. That's where we used to live quite a few years. And um, presumably that had changed quite a lot since the 50s. Presumably you saw changes. Uh, yes, not so much in Rollwright. Of course, more houses and more roads instead of paths. But it's still lovely there. The countryside is lovely. I loved every bit of it. I would have loved to go to Kidlington. We lived there, but as we were late and had to come to you, we gave it up. Whereabouts did you live in Kidlington? It was a little bungalow. I couldn't tell you exactly. It belonged to a Navy officer, and he let it to us furnished. And working-class bungalow, more or less. And... You were, in, you were in Glimpton for a while too, weren't you? Where was I in? Glimpton. Oh, Glimpton directory, yes. And I regretted very much having to pass it instead of going there. We come now from the Cotswolds and I passed the sign to Glimpton. And I lived at the Glimpton rectory for a while uh, because it was very hard to find quarters. London was bombed out and... Or do you say London? London or London? London, London, London was yes. bombed out. And um, so they took us in. But not the children. That was a hard separation. Your, your children were at a school near Ensham? A child, your children were at a school near Ensham, weren't they? No, they went in Chipping Norton. They Chipping went Norton. to school in Chipping Norton. Okay. And later on the boy went to Eastbourne College. Right. You used to go to uh, evening classes in Chipping Norton at one point, didn't well, you? Well, I went to the, what was it called, Workers' Educational Association, yeah. or something like it. And I talked about the then new Germany, that was East Germany, and on economics. I had nothing to do in the end there. Before I was very busy, and then I went there and uh, gave lectures once or twice. Now, what nationality are you? What does it say on your passport? I'm German. You're German, yes. So both your parents were German? Both my parents are German. We are all from Berlin. That is my, even the generation before. We are really true blue Berlin people. Now, you grew up in a very big house. It seems as if you grew up 
in some style. Yes, it's a beautiful house. We were six children and it had many rooms and it was on a lake and on a lakeside. Uh, you know, Berlin is surrounded by lakes. And I went there 30 years later and it's still beautiful. It belongs to the church now and they have the money to renovate it whenever necessary. And it's still, I think, the most beautiful house there. An architect with taste had built it for us. And that's where I grew up. Was there any talk of politics when you were a girl? Yes, of course there was. Mainly politics. <laughs> Not mainly, but mother was a painter and so we had lots of artists as guests. But father was a scientist, an uh, economist. And uh, he was politically very interested and was left-wing. Uh, he wasn't a communist, but he was in left-wing organizations and he published statistics for the working class with the existence minimum, with the minimum living standard, uh, which was always uh, in favor of the working class, but true, I mean. And other living standards were not so true. So the trade unions and the workers all stuck to his living standard reports. So when you grew up and you started to think about the world and think about politics, which sort of politics, politics were you drawn to? Well, uh, you know, I grew up, we were six, as I said, children in that beautiful house. And my work started as apprentice in a bookshop in the middle of Berlin. And I was exploited like any apprentice was then. And the difference between our house and coming into town and seeing the beggars from the First World War, the soldiers sitting there on little carriages without legs or with one arm or blind, begging. That was terrible to see. And I think youngsters usually have a sense of justice and the comparison between our house and those beggars and also the large numbers of unemployed we had had an enormous effect on me. And then I started reading a lot. I read Maxim Gorky, the Russian writer, and he loved the poor people. And I, I felt the same love for them. And uh, then I started reading letters from Rosa Luxemburg. How do you say Luxembourg? Mm -hmm. Does it mean anything to you? Mm, yeah, it does, Rosa yes. Luxemburg, her letters from prison. And I loved those. And then I read the first book by Lenin, State and Revolution. And I was all for that. And then I went, first time when I went to a demonstration, I was hit by the police. And that hurts devilishly, they are rubber truncheons. And I was a slip of a girl, and the bobby was, uh, well, I mean, two meter high. And I had to leave the demonstration. I just couldn't breathe, somebody took me out. And then I had to decide, either you join or you don't join. And I joined, well, I joined for life. That's it. You joined what? I joined the communist youth. I mean, I joined the revolutionary movement. I, I joined Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg and Maxim Gorky, but it was the, for, not the forerunner, it was the communist youth league, which was for the youngsters who later mostly became members of the communist party. I was 17 when I joined it. And when I was 19, I went into the party. 
So you felt th that communism had the answer, that somehow you could express your love for poor people by becoming a communist and you could do something about it? Well, I felt it more just because they wanted people to be more equal. They were against wars that played a great part after I had seen all those cripples. And uh, uh, I thought, well, they don't want that big difference between rich and poor. And they want that everybody has the same chance in education. And all this appealed to me. And I thought I was there in the right place. And when you went around the world, when you went to oh, I don't know, China or Switzerland or Poland or whatever, this didn't, this didn't change your mind. You still On the contrary. When I came to Shanghai, then I really knew what poor, poor people meant and starvation. I mean, there... Germany was a rich country, even the poor. You saw the people dying of starvation in the streets in Shanghai. And that impressed, uh, that uh, was such a shock that people lived below the level of even being able to live. I mean, you didn't see that all the time and often, and you saw it only in the Shanghai quarters and in the Chinese quarters. But this made clear to me how bad it looks in the world. And then I was pregnant with my first child, and one of the first things I saw, a dead child laying on the roadside. And I was, didn't know it was dead because it wasn't cold yet, and the nappies were still wet. And then I had to decide, I knew becoming a communist in China, if you're caught, it means death sentence. And that was a great conflict, expecting a child and knowing you want a job that carries death sentence. But I thought, well, you wait until your child is born. And after I had thought that, I thought, well, you would probably wait until you don't feed it anymore yourself, mm. this mother's milk. And I knew, then I would think, oh, you wait until it walks. And I found that I, looking, that I was looking for excuses. And I told myself, there are excuses. And if you are not only a noble communist, an intellectual communist, but a real one, you must now take the decision that also when the child is born, you follow that road. And you can't think only of your child when you know there died 10,000 of starvation in town. It would be horrible. And I also knew I couldn't look myself in the mirror. If, if I would have not joined, I would have just been a, a nothing. My character would have been spoiled. And well, that's how it was. Now, you were called upon, or you did, very special work. What would your description be of the job that you did? Well, that happened actually uh, incidentally. Uh, you know, the party was strictly illegal. And it was very hard to find contact with the Communist Party in China because, as I say, if you were caught as a communist, that was death sentence. So, and I was a European and lived in European quarters. And then I met Agnes Medley, the American revolutionary writer. And... Uh, I thought you could have confidence in her and tell her that you want to help in general the revolutionary movement. I didn't say the communist movement. I don't know if she was a communist. And she could feel that I really meant it. And she said, well, I sent somebody to you. 
And then somebody came to me, and that was Richard Sorge, who is, of course, much more famous and important than I am. That was the intelligence officer of the Red Army, who was um, killed by the who was uh, killed by the Japanese after he had done nine years secret work there. But at that time he was young and he had started in Shanghai, and he came to see me, and said, "Would I help?" Out of solidarity, the Chinese party, he didn't mention that it was the intelligence service for the Red Army. Uh, because in illegal work, you only say as much as is necessary. And uh, it would be useful to have a European house, to have the house of a European in a European quarters. That was a British settlement. And he would meet there with Chinese. And I, he has to tell me it's dangerous. And then he discovered I was in, well, I was visible. I was in the seven months, and he didn't know that. And said, you can think it over a few days. But I had made up my mind before, so I said immediately, I've thought it over, and I'm ready to start. So that's when you first became engaged in secret work. Yes, yes. And he hadn't to teach me anything about secret work, because I knew from the beginning the Chinese he meets in my place are, of course, in danger. And if you uh, are responsible for people who are killed when they're caught, you learn all the methods of conspiracy. Do you say conspiracy? Mm. Yes. All the illegal methods you learn yourself. I mean, you just watch if the house, if the, ho if the neighborhood is clean and so on. Let me just take you on. There's so much in this story that I could ask you about, but I want to ask you, obviously, as we're sitting here in Oxford, about when you came here. What did you come here for? You've said that it was difficult to find places to live, difficult find, to find places uh, with your children. Oxford was full because it wasn't being bombed. What were you here for? Well, I would have gone to London, but my parents had gone because of the bombing in uh, London, uh, to Oxford, and father was a scientist, he was an economist, he worked on population questions, and he needed the universities and the library here, the libraries here. So I knew the parents were to in, lived in Oxford, and I came here with the two kids and the suitcases to the parents, where should I go? Then to my parents. So I came to my parents, and I stayed there only a few days, because I had a landlady who had taken them in, and I looked around for place in Oxford, because they were there. And now, of course, comes that story which you may hint at or want to ask about famous stories about I came here because the MI5 was near Blenheim Palace. Mm. And fortunately, all the other stories have gone to water now. There was a story that I masterminded and managed Roger Hollis, the director of the MI5, and that I knew the fifth men. And, you know, all the spy thriller writers, where they need to, to earn money and each has to have something special. And you're so helpless. It simply was not true. So now are you telling me, are you telling your readers the real, total, complete truth? Yes. 100%. Right. 
Right. Now you will say, and the intelligence officer, or as you call it, the spy always lies. But that, that is a true story. But never mind. I think it has died down. Everybody realizes, I mean, anybody with a little bit of the scientific mind realizes that it's impossible that I managed Roger Hollis. And they found out themselves it can't be possible. And also, thank heavens, they have found the fifth man. And they thought, I know who is the fifth man. And with relief, I read at home how they found the fifth man, so I won't be pestered about the fifth man. What because you, di you didn't know who he was? No idea. I had nothing to do with it. Right. No idea. Okay. Well, while you were here, all right, it wasn't, it was just... Um, coincidence that MI5 were nearby. Yes, and I was so naive not to know it. And I mean, that's what people don't believe. They're really serious people, and how can I convince them? But, but, you, but you were involved, you did have a bit of radio equipment, you did transmit. I, I did, I had a transmitter, I transmitted secrets to the Soviet Union. That was a job, my job, and I'm proud of it. Even if they all call me traitor and rotten now here in the press. So you did that when you were at Glimpton? I did that, pun. You did that when you were at Glimpton? You transmitted well, secrets? Well, no, that is where I built uh, together the transmitter. I hadn't met my uh, Russian contact yet. I built the transmitter there to have it ready. All right. And of course, I had nothing to do there. Then you went to Killington, so did you transmit to... Killington, to and now we couldn't go because you waited for me, and we were half a mile away, and I wanted so badly <laughs> well, to go Well, you can go, go in a minute. Did, but did you transmit from Killington to the from Soviet Union? From everywhere, where I was. I transmitted from Killington, I transmitted from George Street in Oxford. But first I had difficulty to contact the Soviet Union, and I went two, three times in vain to London, and I was in despair because I had no money and couldn't work, which was more important. And then I met him. And from then on, my transmitter was ready. I transmitted information to the Soviet Union. The, the transmitter, did you have to make any of it yourself? Did you have to put it together yourself? No, no, no. I had to make contacts. I had hmm. to meet people who could tell me things which were important to the Soviet Union. Okay, what sort of things would that be? Can you tell me? Well, I was told anything which is politically for, of interest, and there I didn't worry because I was passionately interested in politics, and I'm an internationalist in politics of all countries. And, you know, you can also find out a lot if you read the newspapers. Richard Sorge told me that you read three, four, five newspapers, you learn how to read behind, between the lines. Mm. So that is really one source of information. And that's the most harmless one. But I had to keep on top of politics, and I loved that, to know as much as possible. But, you, but you did meet Klaus Fuchs. Oh, well, that was much later, yes, yes. That was later. But to that information, I also said clearly in the book that my brother informed me, who was a scientist, and that my father also gave me information. And now the legion has been spread. It was a family spy net, which is utterly ridiculous. Father was a scientist, worked at the London School of Economics, was respected for his science, and as I was his daughter, I took an enormous step to tell him that uh, I do anti-fascist work and that it was against Hitler. That is why I never had any conflicts here. That was anti-fascist work against Hitler. And so I did it without conflicts because that question always comes in the end. And I told him that and I said that this was the Soviet Union. And then he was proud of me without being a communist. I know what happened very rarely. He stroked my head. And I said, well, all I want, I tell you that, 
if you hear something interesting politically, just tell me. And I said, I really needn't tell you because we almost always talk politics. But with you, I don't want to do it behind your back. And we never talked about it again. And then he told me about when the war came, about he had talked to Stafford Cripps, and Stafford Cripps had said the war will be won in three months. The German army will march like through butter through the SU. Well, that was important news then. Later the SU knew. But that was how my news was, and how father was connected is a big word already. We would have talked like that without it too, because that idea of family spynet doesn't fit father at all. All right, there's so much to ask you. All right, you, uh, when I threw in the word, uh, the name Fuchs, that's much later. You were here when war finished. Uh, when the war finished, I was here. We celebrated with Mrs. Lasky together, the wife of um, the judge that was Neville Lasky, not Neville Lasky, I think his first name was. We celebrated in Summertown in our road, George Street, the peace celebration. Yes. All right. Let me then push you to just talk to me about Klaus Fuchs, because you did meet him. Yes, of course he, I talk about and him. And he was working at Harwell. Yes. Yes. Now... Um, you said before that you were proud that you were sending these secrets, whatever they were, from the newspapers or whatever, back to the Soviet Union. Do you feel um, less proud about what you passed on through Klaus Fuchs or from Klaus Fuchs? You mean now, as the situation is now in the Soviet Union, or when I knew it was the atom bomb? What you do you mean with your question? When you were doing it, at the time. Well, at the time, I didn't know it was the atom bomb. But, of course, I would have done it too if I would have known what an atom bomb is. So that's no excuse. I mean, I did it, and from what I saw, I could see it was physics, it was chemistry. I didn't understand at all the figures and the drawings. But I could see it was militarily important. And I knew that Fuchs lived somewhere, Birmingham, Banbury, and was a scientist. You knew that when you saw him, you knew he was a scientist. And as I have quite a few scientists, my father, my brother, I was trained for the look of scientists. I knew it, that he was one, and by the material he gave me. And I passed it on. And by the questions that came, and by the Soviet Union, sometimes the director saying that's very important, I knew what I knew before, it was important. Just the actual relationship with Fuchs, how did he give you things? Where did he give you things? Where did you go to pass on the yes. information? Well, actually, he had lost contact. I believe he had had contact before, but somehow had lost it. And my brother approached me and said, there is a German comrade here who has lost contact. Will you ask uh, the Soviet Union if they want contact with him again, his name is Klaus Fuchs. And I asked, and they said, yes, have contact. And I suppose they or my brother, that I don't remember how, the first meeting place was fixed, that I cannot remember. I suppose they told, I don't know if they, who told me. Anyway, the meeting place was, if I have chosen it, that might also be. That, and that I told my brother and he told Klaus Fuchs, that's unimportant. As I was in Oxford and he lived either in Banbury or Birmingham, I think Birmingham, I didn't know anything of Howell or anything, we would meet sort of in the middle of it. Mm. And uh, I looked up a path and as I 
love nature. I choose some place in nature. And we walked along a path. I looked at the trees. I found a suitable one. At the end, the forest started. And I thought, well, we have to make a, what we call letterbox in that slang of, well, that type of work. Um, and I found a tree. And I choose the root of that tree to leave messages if I don't meet him. But so that time I met him. The first time. Let me just paint that picture again. So when he wanted to communicate with you, or you wanted to communicate with him, you left these uh, these papers in the root of a tree. So well, that was for future yes. communication. First, I met him. Yes. Okay. And uh, there he came, and I don't know what the catchwords were, the code words. I mean, they're varied, and usually I give them either the one carries three oranges and the times uh, folded under his arm and a certain question, can you tell me how I get from here to Campton Town? And I say, I haven't been here for 10 years, I can't tell you something silly, which fits. And I met him, but it didn't need, I knew it was him, of course, it was a lonely neighborhood. I took his arm, so we were a couple in love, young couple, and walked along the path there. And I enjoyed greatly meeting him because I hadn't talked German and hadn't seen a German comrade for so long. And also, you know, it is a great tie if you know you are in danger mm. and the one man you meet is in danger. You become friends so much more quickly. It's, you can't, I can't explain it. The atmosphere is such that unless you don't like him, which might happen, but if it's a good type, you are very close to each other immediately. Did you know that this, what you were doing was so dramatic? Here you are arranging places in North Oxfordshire to leave papers, um, having these, as you say, strange rituals of conversations you had to have or carrying two oranges. Did you know, were you aware of the drama of it at the time? Uh, well, uh, I mean, he was my only contact and mm. I was each time aware of the drama. And of course, I was each time aware of the drama of transmitting during the war when strictly amateur transmitting was forbidden. That was a drama that happened once a week. I mean, why do you call it drama? That was just as dramatic, because that was a moment I could have caught by the British technician. So it wasn't a bigger drama than anything else. I was asking you, I was using the word to see what your reaction was, because I'm interested to know what you feel about it all now, from, from this perspective. You mean now when so much is lost of socialism? Do you mean I that? Mean or do you mean now having aged and looking back on me as a youngster? What do you mean? I mean, you have changed because you have got older. You're looking back at you as a youngster. But also, you say, much has been lost. I would say much has changed. You, it's interesting you use the word lost. So I just wonder how it looks from this perspective. Were the risks that you took, were they worth it? Was the drama that you allowed yourself to get mixed up in, was it worth it? Yes. Well, when I look upon it now, I'm amazed <laughs> what I did, but at the time it was natural. Now I think that I wasn't caught, that I sat there once a week transmitting, two hours sometime, and that they didn't catch me, and they didn't catch my code. I know that all radio operators, or the average, they're caught after three years. And I did it seven years in England, and uh, altogether I did it almost 17 years, and, and I wasn't caught. I mean, that I realize now, and I just must have had luck. 
I mean, it's not a Marxist expression, luck, but I had luck that I wasn't caught. And what one was more drama, one less. And England was less dangerous than the other countries where it was death sentence. I didn't expect that here. Are you still a Marxist? Uh, I'm sure about it. You ask me? Yes, are you still a Marxist? I'm still a Marxist. That's very hard to answer. Uh, I was always a Marxist who knew that what Marx said was, uh, he, was a, he was a genius, a fantastic genius. He was, to me, the biggest economist in the world, so to speak. But I always knew that the things he said over 100 years ago won't go all for today. I mean, to learn that dogmatically and religiously what Marx said, I didn't do that. I mean, I, for that, I'm sorry, I don't want to be conceited, but I was too intelligent for that. And I had to fit too much in this world to know that some of the things are impossible, but some I expected. I accepted, and I still accept some now. I tell you, what he has said about capitalism, I learned that as a communist youth, you know, we had those small uh, books, uh, paperback, uh, wages, profit and prices, something like that, and learn them what capitalism is. And now being part of capitalism, East Germany now has been completely enacted by the Federal Republic. I learned a lot of stuff in the communist use which proved not true and right. But what Marx said about capitalism, I see now is 100% right still today, what they do to us in the German Democratic Republic. It's one last question. Do you have any question at all in your heart that what you did could possibly be construed as being wrong? Well, I know I have enough enemies. You only look at the British press. They call me a traitor. They call my husband rotten. And uh, the, the bad thing is about the press that they quote me with things I haven't said. And that hurts me terrible. And I haven't expected that from the British press. I must say I was naive. And from the serious press. I mean, we used for years, we used to read the Observer, who good mm. brought a good article, by the way, and the Guardian. And well, what, they, what the Guardian wrote about me and, and the Sunday Express, you know, I, I didn't know it was possible to invent quotations of me. I read things which I never, never said. And that's why I said to the publisher, I, I refuse to do anything for the book. And what makes me so angry is also that nobody gives a book review. I mean, do you like the book? Have you read it? Do you find it interesting? I don't want praise of the book. But I was so pleased that Chad Lindus offered to bring it because I thought that's different from all the other spy books. And it is my story. And uh, they will read the truth because it contains the truth. They might believe it. It is fascinating, particularly for anyone living in Oxford to think this was going on here. It is truly fascinating and your honesty sings out. But I do want to know, just finally, ask you again, how do you feel about what you did? Do you feel it was wrong or do you feel it was right? Well, uh, now where socialism breaks down everywhere, you mean how do I feel about it? How do you feel about what you did? Do you feel that you did what was right? Yes. I did, not because I'm obstinate or because I'm starry-eyed, but because my work was directed as anti-fascist against Hitler. I, we were allies 
England and, 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 and the Soviet Union then. And all I did as intelligence officer was to make possible with a little bit of power a single person has uh, to avoid war against the Soviet Union. We didn't succeed. Nobody succeeded. And when the war was on, to shorten it. And if I have shortened the war by one day or two hours, I've saved many lives. And I did that job work. It isn't a job. I did that as an anti-fascist and against Hitler. That's what England did too. That's why I felt well here. And I only thought that you are a bit too lame and too slow and the second front didn't come and so on. And I didn't do harm, I found, to England. And about the atom bomb, I will tell you, and afterwards I learned it was an atom bomb. I was glad the Soviet Union got it because the USA had it. And mind you, the USA dropped it, not the Soviet Union. And I thought that balance is good, that both have it. That might avoid a further use of the atom bomb. Now tell me, was I right or wrong? I felt I was right. Chateau and Windus publish it. It's remarkable. Sonia's report by Ruth Werner. Thank you. Oh,